You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. doing a little bit of a series through Luke. Luke. And today we find ourselves in Luke 4. Now Jesus was chased out into the desert by who? Holy Spirit. I don't, I couldn't hear everything, but Holy Spirit was correct. 20 points to Team Rob. (laughs) Or if this is Harry Potter, then you who got the wrong answer also get 5,000 points. Because it always works out for Harry Potter, no matter what he does wrong. I'm not saying it's bad story writing, I'm just saying. Uh, anyways, um, <laughs> what were we talking about? Right. Jesus is chased out into the desert by the Holy Spirit to be tested, to, be, uh, to have to face temptation. He's about to get the most mega amount of Holy Spirit powers of all time. And if you want to grow in the Holy Spirit, you should expect test and temptation to come. Can you handle these powers? Can you handle, uh, um, can you be trusted to use them well? Uh, there are scholars that talk about the way in which spiritual gifts are given. Sometimes looks like semi-autonomous power that perhaps, perhaps maybe the user is gifted with it and then has to use it wisely. You see this in other stories throughout the Bible, uh, but we dove into those a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to do that again. Having said, Jesus now returns to uh, Nazareth, and he's full of power. And he first, before he gets to Nazareth, he goes out, he starts his ministry, people start getting healed, and then he returns home. And once he returns home, we find the story where his hometown kind of rejects him. But not at first. For a moment here, they're intrigued by Jesus, the carpenter's kid. I mean, they, they've always looked at him through the lens of being a carpenter, but he seems to have these stories connected to him now where he's been empowered by the Holy Spirit. Is God going to call him up in some way to be a prophet? So Jesus gets up to speak at their church service, more or less. And he's, on, uh, he's the one who's going to talk right now, and he says... Um, As was a custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So Jesus pulls out his Bible, looks for a specific spot, and reads this passage to everybody. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Good start. Good start. Two things. One, Uh, This must mean that Jesus has, if he's talking about himself, then he's talking about like uh, the this like prophetic moment, just as the prophets of the Old Testament had the Holy Spirit on them to do stuff. Jesus, too, now has the Holy Spirit. Uh, And then he goes on because he has anointed me. So anointing, there's more of that kind of prophetic calling there to proclaim good news to the poor just as prophets tend to do, always speaking on behalf of the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to free people, to recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Now we live in a world full of books, right? So like if we wanted to learn more about this passage, we would then open up that passage and go listen or read through that spot. We don't memorize things as much as people used to because we have so many books or the internet or things around. Even me, like the things that I memorize these days are so slim, I have accidentally turned my phone into a second brain. Have you ever like, I think it's like a dysfunction that's happening now. I can't remember the most simple of things. Like if Jody tells me to change the laundry, like, hey, Siri, remind me to change the laundry. You know, like, and then if Siri gets messed up and doesn't work right, guess who doesn't change the laundry? Me, because I've offloaded my brain somewhere else. And if that brain doesn't work, I'm in trouble. Uh, That being said, in ancient times, you didn't have all these books accessible. I mean, just to write the book of Romans might have cost $1,000 in paper and ink alone. Like, that's a lot of money. We don't have the Gutenberg press. We don't have books easily accessed. People have to copy them word by word. So that means that when you went to places to hear people teach, guess what you're doing? Memorizing over and over and over again. The words are said. You are eating them up. You are taking them in. Got to remember this. Got to remember this. Got to remember this. And that's part of the reason, you know how your Bible's just super repetitive? Don't act like you don't know this, right? Like the same story was just said for the 18th time within one chapter. And then Moses went and hit the rock. The rock Moses did hit, and the rock was hitteth by Moses. As the rock was like, ouch, you hit me. You know, like it's just constantly repeating itself. That's because in ancient culture, everything was oral. So if you read the story, it had to have a repetition to it. It had to have a rhythm to it. It had to have almost lyrical feeling to it. So as you hear the words, they kind of sink in and you start to remember it. Because you couldn't go just get a scroll the next day and check it out. You had to like sit in the story and let it sink in. So when you read your books today and you're like, wow, they were just really bad writers. No, you need to understand in ancient world, they had to write a certain way. So when it's read in the synagogue, people remember it. That being said, as Americans with the internet, Jesus just read this passage and we just catch that passage. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight of the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But in an ancient world, their ears keep going. Right? Like, like we know what's next. It's like a half-finished song. So let's actually take a look at, like, what's the very next verse in this? The very next verse in the Bible that Jesus is reading. Come on, phone. Oh, I see what happened. Jesus ends with, uh, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If we were to then read the next passage, it would say, dear goodness, where's my passage? There we go. Jesus ends to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is a very kind and wonderful passage. If Isaiah was to go on just one more verse, it would say, and the day of vengeance of God, which then is not so comforting, right? 
The day of vengeance of God. I mean, this is what Jesus' audience in Nazareth has been waiting for. They are exiled people. They used to be on top. They were the, the top of everything. And then God left their temple because they were too sinful and they needed to face the consequence of their actions. And another country came in to this country that used to be on top and just ripped them out and made them slaves and made them exiled. They couldn't go back home to Jerusalem. And now they're like in this weird state where uh, the country that conquered them has now been conquered by another country. And now they're just stuck in Rome and they're still waiting to be back on top. And they know the way that they're going to get back on top is by the Messiah coming someday and freeing them. And now here's the Messiah in front of them. And he gets up to read the scroll and he starts to read about how things are going to get better again. You guys are exiled. You're going to be unexiled. You guys are the poor. You're going to be unpoor. You guys are the captives and liberty is coming. Sight is coming back to the blind. Liberty to those who are oppressed. This is the year of the Lord's favor. But then Jesus stops on the line because the next line in the sentence is, and to bring about judgment, right? Day of vengeance of God. And that's what they're waiting for. They don't just want to be back on top again. They want Rome to suffer. They want the Messiah to come, and and he's supposed to be the son of David, who is a king, so this guy's going to be king too, the the long-awaited Messiah. And he's going to rise up as king and conquer everybody else. He's going to put them all back in their place, a day of vengeance. But Jesus doesn't read that line. In fact, it gets more awkward, because then Jesus goes on, to uh, start talking about, um, hey, you guys remember in the Old Testament that uh, uh, there were prophets that ministered to people outside of the Jewish nation? Yeah, well, that's what it's going to be like for you guys. I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years, six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zerphathah in the land of Sidon. To a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed. But Naaman, the Syrian, was. <laughs> Jesus goes on to his hometown and is like, Yeah, you know, just like the Old Testament prophets were sent to people outside of the Jewish nation, so I also am not going to minister just to you guys, but to people outside of the Jewish nation. You guys remember that story where uh, a town tries to throw Jesus off a cliff? This is the one. Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, who's had these legends about the anointing that's upon him and people getting healed and things like that. That same Jesus is in front of them, and it starts off great. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to free you, and I will be sent to all the other nations. The people that you hate, the, the ones that you think... Uh, deserve to die and be put back at the bottom as we reign above them because uh, I'm the son of David, that king, that messiah, that guy. I'm going to minister to everybody else, your oppressors. (laughs) And they wanted to kill him for it. I mean, even today, if you were to go to a college class, it'd be like, well, Jamin, you used this passage exegetically incorrect because you didn't look at the full context You can't use that passage to talk about ministering to other people when Isaiah meant, like, vengeance upon all other people. I'm here just for for my people. You can't do that, Jamin. 
And here's Jesus saying, yeah, I can. (laughs) I can take this verse out of context. The Holy Spirit illuminates this passage in a new way upon Jesus to fuel Jesus with a mission statement. The truth is, he is here for his own people. In fact, all the Gospels are about Jesus generally, exclusively ministering to his own people because he needs to reach them first, the remnant, the exiled, the Jewish people, before he then dies and is resurrected and sends his disciples out to get everybody else. This is his order. I've sent here first for the, for the Jews, and then we'll go reach everybody else. But at the same time, Jesus foreshadows that right at the beginning of Luke. Jesus foreshadows, look, I'm not just here for you. I have more remnant than just Jewish people. There are people outside of us who also are being called by Yahweh to serve and follow him. And I will be their king too. And in their minds, they're just like, nah, screw the Romans. We're going to overthrow them. But Jesus, even here, no, I'm here for Egypt too. I'm here for Babylon too. I'm here for Rome too. That would throw you off a little bit when Jesus doesn't finish his reading but just stops in the middle of it. And that certainly threw their town off. But they don't understand yet where Jesus is going with everything. They don't understand that the resurrection is this beautiful thing that is coming that is going to put things right, not just for his own people, but for everyone who follows Jesus. And that last verse that Jesus ends on is actually... It's huge to kind of resurrection, in my opinion. Because Jesus comes and he says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, when you don't pay too much attention to that passage, that just kind of feels like, uh, yeah, this is, this, is Jesus, this is God's favor year because Jesus has come and he's, he's within ministry. That's the way that it just kind of appears to us, like a poetic way of talking about Jesus. But the year of the Lord's favor is a, a holiday throughout the Old Testament. Does anybody know what it is? There's like 80 of them, so... Rob, you want to get 50 more points? Jubilee. Jubilee! Did I talk to you about this before? No. no. 400 points to Rob! All right. (laughs) Jubilee, just get up here and finish the message. You know it all. Jubilee was a special year, the 50th year. There were years of Sabbath, years of rest every seven years, but Jubilee was like a rest of rests. Jubilee was a year where all of Israel was told, don't do anything to your land. You can still eat from it, but none of the food that you grew or sowed or anything like that, because you are not going to do any work. I'll grow the food for you, and you can eat that. Anybody in here feel comfortable about this plan here? (laughs) Uh, Guys, don't farm this year. Meyer's still going to be stocked up with everything, but not because we grew it, I guess. You know, like that's... That's a little nerve-wracking, but that's God's command on the 50th year. This is one of those commands where you like just really be like, yeah, this must be God thinking, because what human being even in the ancient world is like, hey, nobody grow any crops this year. We're all going to die. You know, like that's the way that it would be going through your mind. Clearly, God must be in this kind of command because this feels ludicrous almost, right? Uh, But they're supposed to just live on faith. God will grow the food this year. Let him take care of it. On top of that, they're supposed to go above and beyond and all the kinds of things that, that seem in our minds to make society fall apart. 
For example, if you owe somebody a debt, and I don't just mean spiritually, I mean like you actually owe someone money. On the year of Jubilee, you are to forgive that debt. And I don't mean like take a year off, just don't pay this year, we'll come back to it next year. No, I mean like, hey, you know that like $5,000 you owe me? Well, it's a year of Jubilee, so I guess forget about it. <laughs> you know? Like, I can imagine, like, all the people who make loans as year 49 comes around. It's like, nope, it's like insurance. No, you're already pre-sick. We don't take loans. <laughs> uh, uh, we know that next year we have to forgive this. So, no, there's, there's no loans. Or, like, your, in, your uh, rate of um, interest is just probably monumental in those, those years leading up to... to to Jubilee. Yeah, whatever the case is, like, that year was crazy. If you had slaves, because back then they had that, if you had slaves in the year of Jubilee, the way in which you got your slaves most likely is because someone somewhere couldn't pay you and you ended up incurring some of their family to then serve you as a way to pay back your debt. On the year of Jubilee, you had to let your slaves go. Let them go back home. In their minds, they wouldn't understand how that works, but that's the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was like a a reset on society. Because all this kind of stuff, this debt and treating one another wrong and, and having to labor so hard over the fields, all of this stuff doesn't exist in the resurrection. Yeah, I actually think there will be work in the resurrection, but I think it's going to be pleasant. Like if... If in the resurrection life, Jesus is like, Jamin, you can't write any books anymore. That's work. And we're like, really? <laughs> this is heaven? I can't write? Oh, it's work. No work. Those of you who like gardening, I don't think Jesus would be like, hey, stop that. No more gardening. No, because work is pleasant. We all have a certain kind of work that we like. But in the resurrection, that, that tediousness and that soil and that sweat and... And the blood of our hands, like all of that was considered a curse upon humanity and the earth because of our sin. In the resurrection, work will be back to what it should be like. That pleasantness, that enjoyableness, that turning ungarden-like places into gardens. And we enjoy that. In the resurrection, there's no more debt. The spiritual debt that we owe one another, that we owe Jesus, that we owe everyone, is forgiven. Slavery, oppression, societal, in, uh, societal problems upon every kind of society that we face throughout history and face even into today, that is done away with. That does not exist anymore. And so God sets up in the Old Testament every 50 years is like a societal reset. Everything is forgiven. Everything is let go of because I know how you humans always end up oppressing each other. So the year of the Lord's favor... Is the year in which you release each other from all of that bondage. Because that's what it should always be like. You shouldn't just be doing that every 50 years. But because humanity does, God's kind of got the reset button put in there. And God likes to put in a lot of things that foreshadow that which is to come, right? So like marriage is really just a foreshadow of the kind of intimacy that's actually found in God in the life to come. Something like Jubilee is actually a foreshadow of the kind of society that is in the life that is to come. Baptism is actually kind of a foreshadow of the kind of resurrected body 
that is in the life that is to come. The Bible likes to leave all of these different hints, all these different kind of sacramental clues as to where we're headed. So when Jesus comes and proclaims his mission statement, that is something huge about what the life will look like that is to come. No more blind, no more oppressed, no more people in debt, no more societal oppression against one another. Something better and bigger is coming. But here's the thing with resurrection theology. The problem with the church today is that we so often talk about resurrection as though it only matters then, right? And this is how we've done evangelism for so long. Get out there, tell people about Jesus, get them to change their minds, because apparently if you can flip a switch within your brain that says Jesus is real, then you go to heaven, and that's all Christianity is. That's the way in which we've taught it for so long, which does not match the Bible at all. We treat, we treat Christianity as magic. If you say the spoken words in such a way, you become Christian. It's amazing. And then you float away to heaven. No, the Bible shows Christianity as like this mission statement that Jesus proclaimed. That's what you're living into. One day, heaven will come down to earth. That's what you're living into, as though heaven's already on a moving truck driving back and forth through your actions. One day... There will be no more societal oppression. That's what you're living into. When you see oppression, you are bringing heaven down to drive oppression out. One day, there will be no more blind people. That's what you're living into, to go up to the blind, walk in the power of the Spirit, and heal their eyes. That's what you're living into. One day, everyone will be forgiven who follows Jesus, And so you now are living in to forgiveness. Jesus actually says that you have the authority to forgive, which in the Old Testament was thought to be just a thing that God had. But apparently Jesus extends to his followers too an ability to act like God and forgive people. When you forgive people, you're not saying it's okay. You're not. You're saying if you have to forgive someone, that means something wasn't okay, right? Forgiveness is just simply saying, you owe me a debt because of what you did. And in this case, it it may not be financial, it may be a spiritual debt. Like, you've done me wrong and you should go to prison or something like that. Or just like, you've been a jerk and you should do something. You know, there's very different degrees of, of, um, of what kind of wrongs are done against us. But despite that we've been wrong, forgiveness is saying, as a human... Living in the already but not yet of the resurrection, I'm choosing to forgive because that's what's on the other side. And as a human, I recognize that when I harbor unforgiveness, it spiritually affects me, it physically affects me, and it demonically affects me. Every time that I have to cast out demons out of people, we always have to figure out what have you not forgiven? Always. I mean, that's just the, one of the main roots that demons hang on to. You've got to forgive or this thing gets to stay. I've got to live into the resurrection life or this thing gets to stay because I'm still wearing my old flesh. I've got to live into the resurrected body of Jesus because if I act like Adam, demons can fit in that. So how do I forgive Recognizing that one day Jesus will come and bring about vengeance. And on that day when he does, on that day when he does, he will make the call on issues that need to be forgiven. 
as to what is and what isn't. So even when you're saying, I forgive you, you're also saying, Jesus, take the reins, you're in charge. I give this issue over to you, you're the one who makes a judgment call. And that doesn't mean that there's not consequences now. There are plenty of people who still need to go to jail and be forgiven at the same time. You can have both, okay? Uh, with that, that was a weird statement, but if you, if you follow me, um, forgiveness does not mean like no consequences. Sometimes Jesus might call you to that, but other times there are proper responses. All this being said, Jesus' mission statement is what he reads in that scroll of Isaiah. And one day he will finish the rest of that scroll and bring about the day of vengeance. If you read the rest of the Gospels, Jesus talks about that way more than most Christians are comfortable admitting. But for the most part, he's telling us and all of the rest of the world and anyone who's going to follow him, look, if you're going to live into the resurrection, if the Holy Spirit's going to be upon you too, then you proclaim good news to the poor. You proclaim liberty to the captives. You recover the sight of the blind. You set liberty. Those are oppressed. You live in to Jubilee. A last factoid for you on Jubilee. We have no records anywhere that Israel ever practiced Jubilee. Maybe they did. We haven't been here for thousands of years to check the records but as far as anything goes in the bible and throughout any of our research all we know is that there are plenty of passages explaining what jubilee is like and how it should be practiced but we don't actually know that israel ever practiced it marie were you gonna say something just that that. does that shock anybody doesn't, doesn't shock me. <laughs> I mean, even look at student loan forgiveness. That was mentioned just, uh, what, a month ago? The government, the secular government, has decided to forgive people something. That sounds very Jesus-y. Who are the most angry people I met online about this issue? It was the Christians. How dare they forgive? <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is a really weird topic to have to correct in the church. The government has seen the wrongs of how, how um, all this student loan stuff is making people poor, keeping them oppressed, and helping or causing people not to be able to pay their bills. And they're like, we got to change this. And it's the Christians, typically, who are the ones who are like, how dare you forgive? I've paid off my loans. I lived off the sweat of my back. And if I can do it, so can a person who's poorer than me. You know, the logic just doesn't work out. But needless to say, that's, that's a peak of secular government trying to bring in Jubilee. Within the last few months, and Christians today, God followers being like, how dare you? you know? So like, that's an example right there. People don't like Jubilee. It sounds great when Jesus forgives you, but that other party said about if you don't forgive other people, I won't forgive you either. We just kind of put that off to the side. Jubilee means forgiving. Forgiveness, true forgiveness, is offensive. You'd always think that when you see forgiveness, it would be powerful and that people would love it. Not the case. 
We've had uh, some people really oppressed, some black people who have been really oppressed by some white people who have gone up in court cases and decided to forgive the white person for what they did, and the internet exploded at them. How dare you? You are weakening what, who we are and what we're doing and, and so on and so forth. In that moment, they were trying to show a little bit of Jesus, but the world got angry about that kind of forgiveness. Forgiveness, we often think of it as it's just got to be a positive thing for everybody because Jesus has forgiven us and we all know we've sinned. When you look at how people react to forgiveness all across the world on all kinds of cases, they actually consider it greatly offensive. But that is a piece of the world to come. That is the year of the Lord's favor. That is a piece of, of jubilee. And in the future, there is only jubilee. So Jesus, we give our hearts to you. You trimmed a verse short to be focused on the love of people and the freedom, not only of your oppressed Jewish brothers and sisters, but also of your oppressors in Rome and beyond. You took the anointing that Isaiah prophesied about that was for the Jewish people and you extended it beyond. Because if Jubilee is really going to happen, that means you're going to have someone who hurts you that you have to forgive. That means you're going to have to go to the biggest oppressors that you can find in the world. Of whatever kind of race, ethnicity, gender, beliefs, political ideologies, and so on, and forgive them too. So here we are, Jesus. We don't always do that well. But Jubilee needs to break into Jackson into 1208, into our personal lives, and into the wider world around us. So teach us to live into the signpost of Jubilee. Teach us to live into your mission statement that you started your whole ministry with. And teach us to sometimes even infuriate our own out of our love for others to the point that they throw us off cliffs. And if we might ask also when that happens, may you somehow make us invisible so we can walk through the crowd like you did. That'd be great too. JK, Jesus, amen.